you guys can be seated. Thank you for being here tonight. Uh, I know you are excited for Broomball. Uh, I hope that you're excited for this next little bit of time as well. Uh, just so you know how you feel about Broomball in your preparation, in your costuming, in your teamwork, in your research, in your studying the rules, is how I feel about the Book of Hebrews. I did a lot of research, did a lot of, not a lot of costuming, but a lot of uh, just, just praying and work in, um, in our text uh, just over the past couple of weeks, and it has been so refreshing for even my own soul to uh, drink deeply from this one part of the Bible, but to see just how much it has to do with uh, everything else that the Bible has to say. Uh, and so I am excited because Hebrews and our study in this great book is what our Friday nights will largely consist of for uh, probably the next year or so. And so I'm excited to tonight set some trajectory uh, with this book. I'm also excited because Hebrews will be, I know, what will spark many conversations in our ministry as you uh, learn with me about what God's word has to say about how Jesus is better, uh, it will begin to uh, spark conversations and uh, help you love one another and work out the truth in uh, life with one another. Uh, and so I'm excited to see uh, that. I'm also excited because Hebrews is apparently, and as we've decided, what God will use to grow us and to convict us and to save some even maybe and to conform us into the image of his son. And so I'm excited to see what God might do with our study in the book of Hebrews. Uh, if you are newer with us, if you are, maybe this is your freshman year or your transfer year, you've noticed that we do this thing with our preaching time that we often will pick a book and we'll go through it. It's, it's what we lovingly call expository preaching. A couple of big words to describe the idea of going through a book of the Bible uh, verse by verse or section by section and explaining and expounding and making come alive the truth that is found in the Bible. Not what I think the truth is, not what the preacher thinks the truth is, but what the truth of the Bible is. And so it's our task beginning tonight to do that with the book of Hebrews, and I'm excited for that. If you've been with us, and that's sort of old hat to you, I hope that even me just saying that out loud right now helps you to think about how to think about Hebrews, uh, even as we get, begin tonight. Uh, now, the, the book of Hebrews is, has been formative in my own life, just to share with you a little bit. Uh, one of the first small groups I led in uh, GOC, we went through the book of Hebrews, and I look back on that, and I don't know why I, I did that, but it was an awesome study, formative for my own soul. We got through, I think, seven chapters or eight, maybe, before <laughs> the year was up, and uh, I, I said, hey, here's an opportunity to teach uh, other guy in my group. Why don't you do an overview of the last five chapters? Uh, and he, he took us through, and he did a good job, um, but that, that was Hebrews for me in sort of a small group fashion. Uh, my post-college years, serving on staff here, uh, I, Austin Duncan preached through the book of Hebrews, and so uh, look up his sermons, but don't look up his sermons yet because they're my cheat code. Um, but sitting under his teaching in the book of Hebrews was also formative in my life to see uh, so many of the themes that we'll see 
uh, as we go through the book, but even as we'll discuss tonight, uh, that year and a half in my own life was also just so formative, being uh, sitting under the teaching of God's Word with our pastor, Austin, uh, in this book. And so, uh, for me, it's a book that I go to over and over, devotionally and in my study, uh, looking at cross-references. And so, at this point in my life, I'd like to think that I should know it backward and frontward, but I just don't. So, uh, I'm excited to, even for me, to get to know it better uh, myself. Uh, now, as you know, the book of Hebrews is a big, long book. So, as I said, we will probably take uh, something like the next year or so, uh, plus or minus t- nine months, um, to finish. <laughs> um, I'm kidding, but it'll be about a year, a little more than that maybe. Uh, certain sections will go fast. I think you'll be surprised at how fast we get the first chapter done, uh, even. Uh, but certain sections we will stop and smell the proverbial roses and look at a verse or two at a time. It's, I think, sometimes what some of these passages will require. Um, If I read Hebrews, uh, as we sometimes might do when we start a new book here in our ministry, it would take me 45 minutes. So open your Bibles and open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're not going to read it. Uh, We're going to get to the room ball, don't worry. But open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews and we will look at certain sections of the book of Hebrews throughout our time tonight, but I want you to be there so that we can turn quickly and see some of these passages together. Uh, 45 minutes is a little too long for me to do right now, but here's my challenge to you is it's 45 minutes, and I want you to see if you can challenge yourself to read it this next week just once. So 45 divided by 7 is a hard number. So divided by five, that would be nine minutes. You give yourself two days off, and you take nine minutes the other days each day, and you, did I do math right? People look at me like I'm doing it wrong, but it's right, timetables, yeah. Nine minutes, five days, you can do it. Uh, do it by, you know, two chapters a day maybe. You can divide it that way, uh, and, and one day would have one, day, one, one chapter. Read the book of Hebrews this week, and I think you'll find and instructive, even just from reading God's Word. Don't get bogged down on all the details, maybe. Just read it through and get the overall sense of the book. As we begin our study tonight, I want to ask you about the time in your life when you were deciding what to study in college. I want you to think about the kind of conversations that you had, the thought process that you had, maybe the formative time that you went and observed in a doctor's office, or you shadowed somebody at a big firm, or you just talked with your uncle and decided, yeah, I guess I'll go for that major. Now, uh, college nowadays, how it works is usually you're deciding your major before you actually know what you want to do. Now, some of you came out of the womb knowing you were going to be a doctor, but not all of us have that same blessing. Most of you, it took some kind of experience or conversation or internship or uh, summer observing before college to figure out at least a general direction of where you wanted to go. Uh, I want you to think about if you've had a conversation with somebody, maybe even now during college, who's older than you. Maybe if you want to become a teacher, you've talked to my wife, Kimmy, and you, you said, hey, what's it like being a teacher? Uh, or maybe you talked to one of the many engineers in the room and said, hey, what's, 
what's it like being an engineer? Right? Maybe you're an aspiring uh, seminarian, uh, want to be a pastor, and you've talked to Riley about that a little bit. Uh, think about a conversation you've had with someone older than you who is doing what you think you might want to do. And think about uh, the breath of fresh air it is to hear from that person exactly why you're studying what you're studying. It was a midterm time, and you were a little discouraged, but when you talked to that person, you got a, a sense, a reorientation of why you're studying what you're studying. It's such a helpful moment of clarity when you have a conversation like that. What I want to do is do this thing right. Tonight is all about having sort of a conversation like that, but before we begin our study. It's the why we need to study Hebrews. And so as we begin this study, I want to explore tonight why I believe as a ministry we will benefit, benefit greatly uh, from a study, a deep dive into this great book that is the book of Hebrews. Uh, let me pray again and we'll begin with our reasons why we need to study Hebrews. Father, thank you for uh, this group, uh, these men and women who uh, want to follow Jesus, who want to know Jesus, and who want to live their whole lives in faithfulness to him. I uh, thank you because that's such a rare thing in uh, this day and age, and to be able to gather together, even on a fun night like this, but to now for this time focus our hearts and our minds on your word. Would you help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to give you tonight five reasons why we need to study Hebrews. Five reasons why I'm compelled uh, to dive into this study with you guys to see Jesus is better. And that's the first reason. We need to study Hebrews because we need to see that Jesus is better. Whether you'll admit it or not, most of you live a rather competitive existence. Maybe you blame it on the system, capitalism, individualism, ism, whatever it is. You're competitive, though. You want to be a better pre-med student, a better nursing student, a better programmer, a better power lifter than everyone else in the room. That's you. Even if you don't think that's you, even if you don't think you live sort of this overly competitive existence, that's not me, I'm a pacifist, you do, in fact, want to be better than those around you. It takes no more than to just think about what's happening after large group tonight. Just wait till broomball starts. Y'all will be the most competitive people that you know. But we can get competitive about all kinds of things. We, we, we want to be the one that sleeps the earliest so we can get up the earliest because godly people wake up early. Like, you know, you've got that dialed in. Uh, you want to be the person with the biggest small group and therefore the biggest small group is the godliest small group. Notice my mocking kind of tone. Uh, anything to be competitive about is what you and I want to do. You could look at your friend's chicken wings and wonder why they're just a little bit bigger than yours and juicier than yours. You and I want to be better than our peers at something or everything. 
Now, the main overall argument of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better, and better not just in these kinds of superficial, temporal, competitive kinds of ways. Jesus is better in that he is the better provision for salvation. He is the better revelation from God. We'll see in the first four verses next week. He is the better leader, the better deliverer, the better mediator for sinners before a holy God. Let me give you a taste of the argument of the book of Hebrews about Jesus being better. He is better than the angels in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, he is better than the law. And he brings a system that is greater than the system of the law that the angels delivered. He is better than Moses and Joshua, and by inference, David as well. And Jesus brings in and provides a better rest than even the promised land. In chapters 3 and 4, Jesus is better than Aaron and Melchizedek and better than the entire system of the Old Testament priesthood in chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7, and it keeps going. And Jesus provides a better hope. Chapter 7, verse 19. In chapter 7, verse 22, he brings a better covenant that is built on better promises. Chapter 8, verse 6. And then we see that Jesus brings us to a better country, a better city, a better life. That is eternity. Jesus is better in the book of Hebrews. And we, you and I, competitive as we are, uh, trying to be the best as we are, we are the beneficiaries of his better covenant and his better promises. My 49ers are playing on Sunday. I don't know if you knew about that. If you don't, now you do. And they are not just supposed to be. I look at you Raiders fans in the eye and say they are the better team. Detroit Lions fans. They are the superior team. So they should win. Say that meekly. Now, whether or not they show that they're the better team or that they'll actually be the better team, that's, that's the question on Sunday. There's a difference between being the better team on paper and actually being the better team. You see, in the book of Hebrews, we will see through and through that Jesus is superior uh, positionally, theologically, and in reality, he is better objectively. It's, it's facts. We're going to see that. His resume and his spiritual accomplishments are far better than any being that God has used in redemptive history. Jesus is better. But the message of Hebrews is that he must also be actually so in your heart and in your mind. 
That's why the book of Hebrews beckons us to consider Jesus, look to Jesus, see Jesus, that objectively he is better, but that that truth must reach into your heart. And so Hebrews will show us that because he is better, we ought to orient all of life around him. We ought to think highly and rightly of him, of his ability to save and keep and sanctify and to mediate. Because he is better, we will see in the book of Hebrews that we ought to be sure of all that he has done. We're going to see in this book, not just that Jesus is better, but that because Jesus is better, we ought to worship him as better. Jesus must be better to you than anything this world could offer. That's the essence of the Christian faith. And that's the message of the book of Hebrews. We need to see that Jesus is better. Second reason we need to study the book of Hebrews is that we need to expand our view of Jesus' atoning work. We need to expand our view of Jesus' atoning work. Friends, when we think about the gospel, we rightly and intently focus on the atoning work of Jesus on the cross as This reality that is his shedding of his own blood, his perfect sacrifice, his being slaughtered as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And again, to reiterate, we are right to do so. Because that's the gospel. That's the good news for uh, your and my salvation, before we go any further or think about all the things that are going to happen tonight, we need to think about the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Everything that you have done to offend him and everything that you have done that he asked you to do, but you don't. The gospel is that he died on the cross for those sins and that if simply you would turn from your sin and place your faith in him, He will spare you the punishment you deserve for living in sin against him. And instead of punishment, he will give you an eternity with him. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And it is founded on that thinking about Jesus as the Lamb of God slain on the cross. The perfect sacrifice. Amen and amen. That is the truth. What I'm saying is that Hebrews will help us to expand and to deepen our view of Jesus' work in salvation. I want you to think about somebody you look up to, somebody you admire. Maybe it's your, your dad or your mom. Maybe it's somebody in this room. Maybe it's a pastor or a leader in the church. You think of them highly. Either as a model of someone you want to be or just somebody that in life it seems like they they don't have it together, but they, they, they do well. They, they try and they're faithful. I want you to think about somebody like that. Now, chances are that person has a thing that you think of that they do 
when you first think of them. My dad, I think of mechanic, just good old mechanic. Got a car problem, he's the he's, he's first one I'm calling. I think of him as a mechanic. Uh, maybe your person is a pastor, or maybe your person is engineer, or maybe your person is bus driver. But chances are that person also has a dozen other things that they also do. And sort of what makes you admire them is that you think about them and you think, how is it that they are a mechanic and, and Bible study leader and softball player? And you just think of them and you think father and faithful cleaner-upper. Like you just think of all the things that they do. In Hebrews... In particular, Jesus is not just Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And indeed, he is. Now, in Hebrews, helps us to see the all-important reality of Jesus as great high priest. His atoning work was not just him being a sacrifice, but also him being the one to offer that sacrifice on behalf of unworthy sinners before a holy God who could not offer our own sacrifice rightly. And in that work, Jesus made a way forever for you and I to be able to draw near to God with confidence. Now elsewhere in the Gospels and in the epistles, Jesus is spoken of often as prophet, He's spoken of a lot. I think of Matthew as king, coming king. But as common of a word picture as great high priest is for us, that maybe because of certain songs that we sing or the way that we talk about Jesus, we don't realize nowhere else in the New Testament is Jesus spoken of as priest, one whose work it is to be a go-between between holy God and sinful man, except here in Hebrews. And Hebrews shows us that Jesus is not just any old priest. He is our great high priest. He's greater than any high priest since even Aaron. He is the foremost of all. And in fact, with his high priestly work, he rendered all human priests unnecessary now flip with me a little bit just to see these we're going to go on a little bit of a quick great high priest tour in the book of hebrews here Uh, let's look at this look at chapter four with me and let's just get a taste of jesus as great high priest Uh, hebrews chapter four look at verse 14 since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here we see the effectiveness and the empathy of Jesus, our great high priest. Look at chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 20, 
3, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Look at the permanence and the preeminence of Jesus, our great high priest. Look at chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls, of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There is the saving work of Jesus, our great high priest, to purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. There's the grace of God in Jesus as our great high priest. And then look at chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the, tr- over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That is the hope and the confidence and the assurance in having Jesus, our great high priest. It's a beautiful truth. Uh, We're going to untangle and bring into three dimension all that these passages and more mean about Jesus being our great high priest. But I hope that even just hearing right now from these passages of Jesus, our great high priest, I hope that that encourages you and that gives you a hunger to know more in the coming weeks. Hebrews shows us that Jesus is both sacrifice and sacrificer. He is both sufficient offering and perfect mediator. And for us to see that will expand our view of Jesus' atoning work in a way that will change our lives. Because you see, the work of Jesus on the cross achieves for you and I not just some single-use momentary salvation, 
but an ongoing intercessory work that Jesus continues on our behalf into eternity. As chapter 10 shows us, as we just read, Jesus, even now at the right hand of God, is mediating for you and I, interceding on our behalf. And yet as chapter 9, verse 28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so from sacrifice to salvation on that last day, Hebrews will bring the atoning work of Jesus' priesthood into full view for us. And I'm excited because I believe Hebrews will greatly deepen our understanding of the gospel and grow our roots deep into that good soil. And that it will show us also the greatness of Jesus, our great high priest. There's a third reason we need to study the book of Hebrews, and it's this. We need to see the value and integrity of the whole Bible. We need to see the value and integrity of the whole Bible. There is a perplexing and impossible question when it comes to the book of Hebrews. It is perhaps the most common question that you'll encounter if you were to begin a study of the book. And it's the question, who wrote Hebrews? Who wrote Hebrews? Who, who done it? The study in and of itself of the authorship of Hebrews is a black hole, and we could miss Broomball if we wanted to talk about it. It's a favorite passing joke of preachers where they say, well, at least we know Paul wrote Hebrews. You've heard that joke before, or you've heard the opposite of that, about Hebrews in a question mark. Now you know. Now you're in the club. Now you can laugh a little bit when the preacher makes that joke. I guarantee you, in our study, I will accidentally, and I guarantee you it's accidental, accidental I will say Paul at some point. I'm just telling you ahead of time. And it'd be by accident, because I'm so used to saying, well, Paul says here. I actually believe it's not Paul. Uh, I was studying this week, and there's a book on my digital shelf uh, that is entitled The Epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. <laughs> and uh, so there you have it. It's settled, right? Uh, well, that book is representative of what everyone in church history for the first probably 1,500 years of uh, the church thought that it was written by Paul. At least most people thought that until the Reformation, when a deeper study was done into the language of Hebrews and uh, some of the features of Hebrews and some of the implications of the theology in Hebrews. We won't get to all of it tonight, I promise you. Uh, but I'm convinced it's not Paul. If you think about some of the typical Pauline features in a Pauline epistle, you would think of an opening section where he introduces himself and who he's with. Uh, you could think of the style of the book of Hebrews versus the style of many of the Pauline letters where there's a sort of first half, second half. We don't have that in the book of Hebrews. Uh, scholars beyond my ability say the Greek in Hebrews, that is to say the Greek language, the use of the Greek language in which it was written in the book of Hebrews uh, is a little too elegant to be Paul. Now, I don't know, Paul's good enough for me, but apparently his, his Greek wasn't quite as elegant as 
uh, is, is in the book of Hebrews. Uh, scholars like to say that the level of Greek and the elegance of that Greek is more like Luke. But they also say, at the same time, the style is not quite like Luke's. So it's probably not Luke's uh, book. Others venture further into conjecture and say, well, it's Apollos. Because when the Bible says that he, was, he had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, that must mean that you wrote a book of the Bible. And they say, well, it must be Apollos. Or uh, some say it's Barnabas or Silas. I mean, everybody's a candidate in this thing at this point. So we don't know who actually wrote the book of Hebrews. And if your friend tells you it's Paul, let them still be your friend, but they're wrong. Now, what we do know about whoever wrote this epistle is that it was someone within the apostolic circle. Look at chapter 2 with me real quick. Chapter 2, look at verse 3. The author, not Paul, the author writes, How should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, talking about the gospel, talking about this great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Meaning, it was attested first, or spoken first by Jesus, and then it was attested to us, related to us, relayed to us by those who heard. Those who heard from Jesus told us. So it's somebody who is homies with maybe Paul and the other apostles, but it's probably not somebody because he says us. We're second generation. There's Jesus, a layer between us, and then us, the author of Hebrews says. But it's someone, indeed, within the apostolic circle, if you just consider simply the theology of the book of Hebrews. It's someone who had to have known with a great kind of knowledge and a great kind of intimacy with somebody who knew the Lord Jesus and was with him, or had, like Paul, experienced a vision of him, and was an apostle. Turn to the end of the book of Hebrews, and we'll see another thing that will help us a little bit in this search of who we know didn't write this book of Hebrews, but who might have. Uh, chapter 13, verse 23, kind of a hum-ho verse that you read at the end of your devos, and you just think, well, cool. Great, recognize a few of those words, but that's about it. But look at chapter 13, verse 23, and it actually is an incredibly helpful verse to understand some of the context of the book of Hebrews. Uh, the author writes in 13:23, You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Just a little bit of context, a little bit of situation, right? Sounds like Timothy was in trouble, he was in jail. Well, what this tells us is that the author and the recipients knew who Timothy was. We'll get to a little bit of this later, but notice that Timothy's mentioned and not anybody else. And so because this book could be readily said that it was written by somebody, this unknown author, who was in the apostolic circle, who knew Timothy and knew people who knew Jesus, and because of the message and the quality of this great book uh, that was found to be so consistent with Scripture, Hebrews was readily accepted at an early time in the New Testament canon. It bore the marks of what scholar Michael Kruger calls the essential apostolic deposit. 
Another commentator says it this way, in the providence of God, the church rightly heard in Hebrews the apostolic gospel that witnessed powerfully to God's decisive action in Christ and to its implications for faith and life. So where does that leave us? Well, as to authorship, I like what Origen of Alexandria says, a church father. He says, truly, God only knows. But where does this leave us as to value? I think this should leave us in a place of worship, in a place of humility, in a place of trust and admiration of the sovereignty of God in uh, the books of Scripture. I think it leaves us in a place of worship to know that whoever the author of Hebrews was, I'll put Paul in there too, that it was part of that process by which Second Peter one twenty one says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That in this book, we have the very words of God, that which is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, so that you and I may be complete, equipped for every good work. I think that's where it leaves us. And in studying Hebrews, we will see not just the worth and the usefulness of this book. We will see the incalculable value and integral nature of the entire Bible, particularly the Old Testament. As a percentage of the whole, there is no other New Testament book that quotes the Old Testament more. Romans does it more times, but percentage-wise, per word, Hebrews does it the most. There are 40 or so references proper uh, to the Old Testament, and that's not to speak of all the allusions and the pictures and the sort of echoes of the Old Testament that we find in this great book. That we will be transported into angelic realms and into the Canaanite wilderness and to Egypt and then to Mount Zion. We'll look at the lives of Abraham and Moses and Aaron, that of David and of this mysterious figure, figure called Melchizedek. That we'll dive into Genesis and Leviticus and Numbers and into the Psalms and into Jeremiah. And the author of Hebrews will weave a theological thread through it all and then carefully pull it tight. And with that, show us great assurance and hope found in Jesus. Our study of Hebrews, I'm convinced, will press us to read our Bibles more and read our Bibles more carefully to look back with wonder at the great many ways that God has worked throughout redemptive history, uh, to study and to seek to understand what we don't know, and ultimately to see that what God has given us in his Son as his final word is indeed all that we need. In fact, as we stand at the beginning of this runway, that is the study of the book of Hebrews, this thing's not going to get off the ground unless you do a little work with me. And that's why you should take the Old Testament class. 
That's why you should read the book of Hebrews, not just this week, but with me and maybe set a pattern for yourself to read this great book and look up what the cross-references are and to see all that God has for us in this book of Hebrews, but what all he has for us in his word. There's a fourth reason why we need to, to study the book of Hebrews, and it's this. We need to be warned. We need to be warned. Uh, we are so sure of ourselves. We are so confident in ourselves. It was my birthday recently, and I don't tell you that to shower me with gifts unless you want, me, you want to. But it was my birthday recently, and when you get to a certain age, another birthday isn't you thinking, yep, I'm getting more experienced. You start to think that you're getting old, and you start to feel unsure of yourself. <laughs> and I was thinking about how being unsure of yourself, you know, getting older, having an identity crisis, gray hairs, like all that stuff, it, it, you being so unsure of yourself is actually probably a manifestation of how sure you are of yourself, and you're just seeing, you're getting rocked because you can't, you can't run like you used to. You can't get up off the couch like you used to. You can't remember things like you used to. We are so sure of ourselves that even being unsure of ourselves is maybe a manifestation of that. We are sure of our abilities in our fields. We are sure of our growth. We are sure of our speaking ability. We're sure of our maturity. We're sure of our social abilities, our spiritual growth. We are sure of ourselves, and yet we need so much validation. We need so much assurance and affirmation from people. We exude confidence for a person and a half sometimes. We don't like being told what to do. We certainly don't like being questioned about how we live our lives. The Bible as a whole, and the book of Hebrews in particular, would tell you, over and against being sure of yourself, there's actually only one thing that you should be sure of. That you can and you should be sure that you are saved if you are saved. And that's ultimately and only because of the sure work of Christ. Pastor Austin says it this way. Don't have confidence in the strength of your own confession, but have confidence in the salvation that is in Christ and Christ alone. Look to him to persevere you, to grow you, to sanctify you. He is your only hope. So the antidote to apostasy is in seeing the all-supreme, unequaled Son of God. That is to say, don't find confidence in your own ability to say, yeah, I believe Jesus, have confidence instead in the objective reality that salvation is 100% provided and secured into eternity by the work of Christ. Be sure in that. It is only by his once for all work in shedding his own blood that you can be 100% certain. And that's what we'll see in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews most commonly is referred to as an epistle. It's a letter. It's in the section of your English Bible, as you know. 
You think it's just toward the end, but that's the section that is the general epistles. Notice Paul's letters are kind of all in one area. The gospels are all kind of on an area. This is the general epistles, and it's in that section. And yet most commentators would agree that Hebrews, in some way, is like a sermon, or if you like the word, like a homily. It's a written sermon or a written homily. One guy I read this week calls it a letter essay. A letter essay, Hebrews is. (laughs) This letter essay has an interweaving of theology and exhortation. It circles in telling us the truth about Christ and then how to apply it as well. And in these exhortations, there is a distinct strand woven throughout of warning passages that caution us, that threaten us, that warn us of the dangers of unbelief, of drifting, of not entering his rest. Flip with me to chapter 2, look at verse 1. This is one of them. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. In verse 3, how should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Chapter 4 has got another one. Look at verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Look at chapter 6, verse 11. And these are just a few verses out of bigger sections that are these warning passages. Verse 11 of Chapter 6, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Chapter 10, verse 26, is another helpful warning passage. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Look down at verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And finally, in chapter 12, there's a fifth warning passage. Again, these are just certain verses picked out of greater context of these warning passages and in the argument of the book of Hebrews, but chapter 12, verse 12, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I think when we hear these passages, there are a few common things that we think. I think the first thing that you might think when you hear a passage like this is that you think of someone in your life. Maybe someone in your small group, or maybe someone in your class, or maybe a friend or a family member. And you think, if they're in this ministry, you think, yeah. That'll be so good for him to hear. That's going to be really helpful for her to be there when we hit chapter 2 or chapter 4, 
so on and so forth. And that's exactly why we need to study the book of Hebrews, because we need to be warned. But it's why we need to study the book of Hebrews, because it's not for your friend, it's for you. If you thought that first, that's why we need to study the book of Hebrews. If you're already past it, and you've thought, I don't need warning in my life, I'm good, my friend is the one that needs help. That's exactly why we need to be warned and we need to study the book of Hebrews. Because the minute that you are sure of yourself more than you are sure of what you have in Christ, you face the danger of the book of Hebrews in drifting, in not entering that rest, in not seeing Jesus as you should. I think when we hear these passages, though, we might also think something else. We might have a question, an earnest theological concern sort of question, or just a simple question. How do these kinds of passages fit, harmonize with the great confidence you say we're supposed to have, preacher man? When chapter 10 says we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, in that chapter 10, we can draw near with true heart in full assurance of faith, how is it that the author of Hebrews can urge us toward confidence in one moment and then sternly warn us in the next? Well, as those so sure of ourselves, and yet sometimes in the things that matter most, so unsure of where we are with God, with this kind of wavering faith that needs grounding, it needs an anchor. Hebrews will help us to see that certainty, that assurance is built solely on Christ. And it is also, though, strengthened by being checked. True faith, we will see, is fortified by being warned. We will see warning passage by warning passage, the great help that it is to be warned in growing our faith and pushing us to hold fast to our hope in the Savior and in the Savior alone. I shared with you guys last week that I went to a really cold place in a really small town, population 2,000 uh, degrees, negative 11, at least last week. It's more like in the mid-teens and maybe low 20s this week I looked at the temperature out there. And I was glad that my friend told me, hey, Matt, might want to pack a little bit heavier than you were planning. St. California. He gave me a warning. And when I got there, I was really, really glad that I got that warning. And even then, I didn't feel prepared. I had a warning ahead of time. And that is how the book of Hebrews operates for us as a ministry in this day and age, this century, where we get the full revelation of God, Hebrews is a grace in your life, and you need to see that right now. It's not for your friend, it's for you, and it's a grace of God that we have this whole book to help us check ourselves, to help us make sure that we are of Christ, to make sure that we are in the faith. to put our confidence in Christ and in Christ alone, 
and to see that this side of eternity, we can never be more sure of where we stand with God than however much it is that we are actually looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The book of Hebrews will show us that we must be loving and trusting and walking with and waiting on our Savior. He is our only hope, and in him we can be sure. The overall tenor of Hebrews in its warnings reminds me of a passage in 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Usually we stop there. The verse keeps going. Paul writes, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. You see, I still don't think Paul wrote Hebrews. But 2 Corinthians 13.5 captures the spirit of the book of Hebrews. You see, Hebrews shows us the greatness of Jesus and it calls us to consider him, to see him, and then to examine ourselves saying almost, do you not realize that you have this great high priest that you can be sure of? very last warning passage of Hebrews in chapter 12 ends like this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. I love the humility and the tenderness and the gratitude, the perspective that is in those two verses. Because it's all because of Christ that we can be sure and yet we need to be warned. Last and finally and quickly, we, uh, the fifth reason we need to study Hebrews is that we need to have the kind of faith that can face the trials of life. We need to have the kind of faith, faith that can face the trials of life. Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians likely sometime in the late 60s A.D., now, scholars point to that verse in chapter 13 that we looked at, where Timothy is mentioned in that sort of mundane but important verse, chapter 13, verse 23. And they see that Timothy's mentioned, and they say, well, Paul wasn't mentioned. And some people say, well, then Paul wrote the book. But other people say, well, Paul was likely at the point of the writing of the book of Hebrews uh, dead if he wasn't mentioned. And so the conjecture there is that it was sometime after A.D. 64 when most scholars believe Paul died. Another thing to consider is that with the extensive discussion in this book of the sacrificial system, not only can we gather that these were probably Jewish believers who understood the sacrificial system and the argumentation in this book, but we also are helped with the dating of this book potentially. See, the author of Hebrews speaks as he speaks of the sacrificial system, he speaks in the present tense when speaking of sacrifices. He, he doesn't speak in the past tense. He speaks in the present tense. And if you know your history, if you've taken a Jerusalem class, you know A.D. 70. A.D. 70 was the destruction of the temple. And so in the minds of scholars, this is a fact that surely in the mind of the author... 
in his argument, he would have said something about how that is no longer true if the temple was destroyed, that these sacrifices were no longer being offered. If you follow a little bit of that grammar, a little bit of that history, what that means is that most scholars place this book before A.D. 70, after A.D. 64, but maybe before A.D. 70. Now, there's, if you're a grammar nerd like me, there's ways around it. There's what we know and call the historical present. You can talk about something in the present tense that is actually past. Look it up later. And so even if the A.D. 70 thing is not true, it's past that time, uh, bottom line is that this book was written before A.D. 98, which uh, is important because Clement of Rome quoted the book of Hebrews extensively in some of his work. And so it's hard to insist on a date, but most of these arguments are by inference, and they show us sometime either mid to late 60s or maybe as late as even the 90s potentially, But what's helpful about that is to acknowledge the era that this book was written in. The kind of an era that was the chapter 2, verse 3 kind of era where it was the second generation of believers. Uh, The era of the Christian faith that we are talking about. uh, One of late first century socio-political environs. A time when Christians regularly faced persecution. And these Christians to whom the author of Hebrews is written, uh, is writing, are no exception. Either they are facing persecution from the Jewish establishment for their acceptance of Jesus as the Messiah, or it may be that these believers are uh, facing persecution, plain old normal persecution from uh, the Roman establishment or other nations or groups around them. Regardless, these believers are tempted to, because of their situation, return to Judaism, to return to when life was easier. Uh, Christians at this time were getting all the attention that it's almost like the world forgot that they persecuted Jewish people before. So they were tempted to return to that old system and this system and this religion without this Jesus, the Messiah. Look at chapter 10 with me. In verse 32, the author writes this, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. These believers' lives were at relative peace now, But they had at some point experienced persecution for their faith, prison and the pillaging of their goods. Chapter 13 mentions prison again, that some of their friends are currently now in prison and these believers were to remember them. Inherently, by its historical setting, by its context, the book of Hebrews helps us to understand how to face trials how to have the kind of faith that will be sustained through trials. Friends, we may not now currently be in a time where we face any kind of real persecution. But in your lifetime, 
the likelihood is extremely high that opposition to your faith will increase. All it might take is for one of these watershed issues that you know and I know is to become bona fide, codified fuel in the fire for the world's opposition to Christ. All it takes is one law to be passed or one thing to change or one person to be voted on at the end of the bench and things might change. That's what the Bible says is the reality for the Christian, in fact. And the fact that you and I have common convictions based on what this old book the Bible has to say about truth and sin, about heaven and hell, and about how the only hope for sinful man is found in Jesus, that fact might be enough to land you in the slammer or get hit with a fine or maybe pay the ultimate price for Jesus. The answer to the kind of trials and persecution we may face in this life, the answer in the book of Hebrews is faith. And in Hebrews, we'll be challenged not only to find that faith in Christ, our great high priest, who is better, but we are challenged to grow and exercise that faith. We are called to run the race. In Hebrews, we'll see clearly what kind of faith that this is, a faith that is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's the kind of faith that is the faith like Moses who considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. It's the kind of faith that with endurance runs the race set before us. We will see that true saving faith and trial-resistant faith is the kind of faith that lives and dies looking to Jesus, anticipating what Chapter 11, verse 16 calls a better country. That is a heavenly one. And so I'm excited for our study in the book of Hebrews. And I hope you are too. I want to finish by asking you, when's the last time you did a good puzzle? When's the last time you circled up with the fam or the apartment before maybe you went a break and did, did a puzzle together? You know, thousand pieces. Puzzles are good for your soul. It's like chicken soup. When you do a puzzle, what's the first thing that you do? Okay, half of you said open the box. I get it. You open the box, and then what's the first thing you do? You dump the pieces out. After you dump the pieces out, you flip them all over. Then what's the first thing you do? You find all the edges but you find the corner pieces, right? William Lane, a commentator, says this of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a delight for the person who enjoys puzzles. Its form is unusual, its setting in life is uncertain, and its argument is unfamiliar. It invites engagement in the task of defining the undefined. Grace on Campus, in this puzzle that is Hebrews, with so much that we've seen tonight, we don't know about it. Let's, this next few quarters that we have together in this book, 
look at what we do have in the text. Thirteen beautiful chapters about how Jesus is better and how it helps us to look to him. Tonight, we got the corner pieces. And I invite you to be here on Friday nights as we put together this masterpiece of a puzzle that is the book of Hebrews. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We're so grateful for the time together before uh, an awesome time tonight of fun and fellowship that we can look to your word and look to see what we need to see in the book of Hebrews. We're grateful for the time we will have and we look in anticipation, not just for our study in the book of Hebrews, but Lord, we look in anticipation to the return of Christ. We ask, O oh Lord, come quickly. Take us home. And until then, Lord, we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we worship him with our song and with our lives. May this be true of uh, the saints in this room. We ask and we pray your help in Jesus' name. Amen.